Father of Lights. You know, if you don't know that song, Grace City Family, um, after this service, uh, sometime this week, go back and, and listen to that, look at the lyrics. Phenomenal song that is right at the center of our text this morning. We're in our third week of our series uh, on the book of James. James is our director. We are on set. It's like a film set. And James is the director, and he has inserted uh, in our th this week's text a new title. And so I'm going to work from that same title this morning, uh, the same title as the last song we sang, Father of Lights. And we're going to break that down and unpack that in ways that I think will be uh, really good for our hearts. Now, we find this singular name, uh, Father of Lights, in our text this morning in James 1, 13 to 18. Uh, pieces of that will be coming up on your screen as we go on. But this title, Father of Lights, provides the covering for all that we're about this morning, for everything we talk about. And it's reasonable to conclude that this title that James gives God in heaven, Father of Lights, it's reasonable to conclude that this communicates more than just the physical lights of creation, the stars, the moon, and the sun, but also the idea that God is the author of all that is not darkness, integrity, honesty, justice, glory, compassion, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, it goes on, all these things are what gives credit to the name Father of Lights, all the qualities of God and examples of spiritual light. So let this be our context this morning. Now, I would say as we gather on this Sunday morning that there is probably, it seems, uh, and check me out on this, Kristen Hannigan, but there seems to be light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. Uh, of course, it's still fraught, uh, and the colloquial version of that is that watch out because that light coming at you might be a train. Uh, but uh, it's still far away, but we perhaps know enough to move away from hope and things not seen to anticipation of the light that we see coming. Where you might say uh, in the next few months that uh, 2020 and the first part of 2021, you might be able to say, we persevered. And this is significant. As Corey ended last week in verse 12 of James 1, um, James says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial under pandemic, under COVID, under all the things that have, have troubled us this year. Because having stood that test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised. And that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Let's persevere. Now, I'm hearing a lot from people about the return from pandemic, the post-pandemic return uh, to something, to something. And I like, for the most part, what I'm hearing. I'm writing about it. I'm uh, preaching about it today. Uh, and I hear things like this, ordinary is out, extraordinary is in. And I actually wrote that in a staff letter for Christmas. Um, I hear things like um, uh, usual is out, unusual is in, normal is out, new is in, remaking, responding, re-everything, re-something is in. And in the uh, uh, wake of, of the new year that we've just experienced, it reminds me of G.K. Chesterton's words, where he said, the object of a new year, listen to this, is not that we should have a new year, but that we should have a new soul. And I think this notion is what's behind much of what I'm hearing about the light that's coming post-pandemic. And you could modify this probably, that the object of the post-pandemic season is not to return to what we were, but rather to aspire to what we might become in Christ. And the possibilities, Corey, are in Christ are, are of course, they are deep 
and they are wide. Corey detailed the endless opportunities in the first two sermons of this series for followers of Christ to move from trouble to triumph, and even to count it all joy as we make that move. When troubles come in, to count them as joy. So I like much of what I'm hearing, but I worry, too, that, that in some cases we might be deceived uh, and miss the point of what we've been through, miss the point of trouble and trials and temptations and tests. For instance, I've heard from several people, they don't want to go back to being overcommitted in their lives in the post-pandemic season. And I, and I understand this, but, but I want to challenge us, church, to perhaps rephrase that. Because in the end, it's not about us with our life on this side of heaven in Christ. And it's never about us. So perhaps instead of saying, I don't want to be overcommitted, we ought to ask instead, what will I be committed to? And what am I willing to lay my life down for? And when we ask those questions, it gets us in line with the will of God, but it doesn't necessarily mean we won't be overcommitted. Because when we say, what am I willing to be committed to? We're letting God have at us and say what he wants to push us into. And I'm not guaranteeing that overcommitment won't be part of it. Now, James worries, too, about deception for followers of Christ in the midst of trials and troubles and temptations. Uh, all the T words you can come up with, right? Um, and, and the root word for all these words in James chapter 1 is the same. So I'm going to use them interchangeably because James does as well. Can you see his concern in the first chapter? They're going to come up on your screen. You see this concern in verses 6 and 8. Uh, which Corey dealt with in the last two weeks. You see it in verses 22 and 26. They should all be up there. Five times in this chapter, church, he warns Christians to not be deceived, not to doubt, not to, to uh, be double-minded, all the D words, if you will. And this week, right in the middle of our text, James warns in verse 16, take a look at it on the screen, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. It's a linchpin declaration uh, that con comparing the darkness of temptation in verses 13 to 15 with the good gifts of the Father of lights in verses 17 and 18. So let's look first at what I call in the spirit of James, um, all the darkness that is not God. All the darkness that is not God. James begins with the idea of temptation. And church, this is not that hard, right, Mary Lou? It's just not. We, we know temptation all too well. We're all tempted at home, at work, at play. We're constantly tempted. We're tempted to gossip. We're tempted to invent lies and conspiracies. We're tempted to keep quiet when we should speak out. We're tempted to speak out when we should keep quiet. We are tempted in every way. The list is large. But the question James uh, gives us here is, how should we respond when we are tempted? And there's lots of theories. Oscar Wilde, the great satirist, said the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. And that's one spirit of the age. Many could edit the Lord's Prayer to say, and lead me not into temptation, I can find my way there all by myself. But there is another spirit of the age, especially among Christ followers, that has to do with the origin of temptation. And this is where James takes us, takes us first, so that we will not be deceived. Here it is, look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, church, we love to blame God directly or indirectly for our sin when we succumb to temptation, when we give in to trials and troubles. It just feels cleansing 
somehow to ascribe blame to somebody else and God, it ends up with God all too often. We say some version of things like, well, the circumstances drove me to it. I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have cussed her out if she hadn't jumped the, 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 the vaccine line. Or we say things like, well, Satan, Satan knows where I'm weakest. I mean, he knows every time I go to a party, I drink too much. Satan knows where I'm weakest. And that sounds spiritual somehow, doesn't it? Gives us some sort of cleansing. Or we might say, oh, it's in my genes. It's just who I am. I can't help it. Now, listen, there might be some truth in every one of those statements, but they all accomplish one destructive lie. They shift the responsibility of temptation away from ourselves, and eventually the blame finds its way to God. We shift, church, Grace City, listen to me, we shift the blame at our peril because we, we, we love to put the, to, to hold the idea that because God is sovereign, he's large and in charge, that, that he's to blame for my issues. And the reason it's at our peril is because it casts God as the villain and excuses us from owning our own stuff. And this is deadly. In my counseling practice, one of the constant themes is you've got to learn to own your own stuff. Somebody say own your own stuff at home. And when we can't own our stuff, it stunts our growth in Christ. So often, church, when we're faced with trials, whether they're minor frustrations or major griefs, we, we often think like this, and I hear it all the time. What have I done to deserve this? Raise your hand if you've said that before. Raise it at home. I mean, it's so, it's so natural. It's so easy to see a trial or a trouble or a temptation through a lens that means that God is looking to, to punish me or ignore me or marginalize me. And James wants you to know clearly God is never the villain. Let me come get you, as my brother Corey says. When I was um, in high school, probably about ninth grade, I shared a bedroom with my older brother who was a year ahead of me. And I woke up one morning, Corey, to, to hearing a noise from the den. Now, the den should have been my bedroom, but my parents called it the den, put a TV in there, and that's what happened in that room. And by the way, TVs were really big back then, and it was only three channels, and it was, anyway, that's beside the point. But I heard a noise coming from the den. And uh, so I got up out of bed, nobody else was awake, and I, um, I opened the door to the den, and I found that the noise was coming, that a bird had flown in uh, through a window that we had failed to close the night before. So... Um, so, I'm, you know, I, I see that, but as I open the door, the cat, our cat, and by the way, this cat lived to be 26 years old, which is also beside the point, but that's a lot of years for a cat. But as I opened the door, the cat came in with me, and then it was chaos. I mean, round and round we're going. I close the door behind us. The cat's chasing the bird. The bird is fleeing, and, and we're both, we're both trying to get hold of this bird. But the bird thought we were both dangerous. It couldn't differentiate that the cat was trying to, to catch her to kill her, and I was trying to catch her to rescue her. And we have to, church, we have to imprint on our minds and hearts that when it comes to temptation, God is our rescuer. He's not after us to, to take us down. He's after us to rescue and release us. So we must learn to land, to hold our temptations out to him, to let him have them. And let him release us. Now, James warns us not to be deceived about the origin of temptation, but he also warns don't be deceived about the power of temptation. Look at verses 14 and 15. 
Here are very powerful words. It's on your screen, but here are the words I see. Dragged away, enticed, sin, death, Lord. The power of temptation ought never to deceive Christ followers. C.S. Lewis wrote about our deception in this, this way, and it's a little bit long, but stay with me because he, there's no words better than these. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes our deception when it comes to the power of temptation. No one knows how bad they are until they have tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is that good people do not know what temptation is or what it means. This is an obvious deception. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the wind by walking against it, not by lying down in it. Are you with me? That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight against it. And Jesus, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what the power of temptation is like. So James says to us, church, don't be deceived. Don't be double-minded. Have no doubt. Temptation resides within us, and it is powerfully serious. So don't flirt with it. Flee from it. And church, it doesn't mean, by the way, that, that we'll be sinless, but it, may, it does mean as we grow up in Christ that we can actually sin less. Are you with me? That's good news. But, but, but listen to me. James is eager to get on to, to something even bigger. Uh, and this is why he, he has in the middle, don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. And here's my second point, and it is this. All that is not darkness. All that is not darkness. So since God does not send temptation, Mary Lou, the implied question is, what is it that God does send? What is he about? And this is even more important to the follower of Christ and to the church. Grace City, we spend way too much of our attention on temptation and way too little on its opposite, where we encounter the Father of lights. James says in verse 16, don't be deceived. Rather, focus on what God does give, send into your life. And here's two ways to get after what's most important. And the first is this. We have to, to know how to remember, to be rememberers of God's good gifts. Look at verse 17 with me, because this is where he begins to replace temptation with his good gifts. Remembering God's good gifts. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And I'll say a word about perfect in a minute that Corey Barnes pointed out a few weeks ago. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no change. Now listen, we're aware of many good gifts of God, right? We, life, breath, the fact that we woke up this morning, Jesus, the spirit, the theological things, salvation, repentance, forgiveness, faith, uh, even wisdom. You know, Corey preached about it as part of his sermon. You know, in James 1.5, it says, uh, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives generously. These are the gifts, the good gifts of our Father. The list is really endless. And they're easy to name. They're theologically important. We sing about them. We just sang about them. And we nod and we go on. And then we tend to shrug it off because they're obvious. And we are obsessed with trouble and trials and temptations and tests because they're obvious. Of course, God gives good things, but oh my God, my life is overwhelmed. And we go back to that. And James is saying, don't be deceived. We go back to being overwhelmed like, like that bird chased around the room thinking God is out to get us or ignore us and not to give us rescue, but he's there to give us rescue. 
Church, I want you to let this text grow you up today because James is onto something psychologically important. So let me speak to you as a psychotherapist for a minute. We can't shrug this off. This is too important to us. Let me tell you about it before I show it to you in the text. James is not eliminating or fixing the trouble, trials, and temptations of our lives. The troubles, trials, the temptations of verse 13 to 15 that we just talked about. That we all experience on this side of heaven. But he is inserting new content. The good gifts of God provide new ways of thinking about our life in Christ. They are designed to replace what goes wrong. To cancel it. As a matter of fact, you can name this. This is God's cancel culture where he is actually replacing our trouble, trials, and temptations with his good gifts. No, church, listen, no intervention can fix your trouble. No intervention can fix the trauma that a survivor has endured. No intervention will immunize you or me from temptation. What James is pointing to is a divine strategy to counter and annul and replace all the T words and bring desired and lasting change, even as we go through all of that at the same time. So to eradicate the view that God authors evil and to counter the power of temptation and trouble, James is pointing out that whatever is good and perfect, now remember here, I told you I was going to tell you about it. Remember, perfect doesn't mean flawless, but rather mature. This is a process of growing up. Um, Corey Barnes talked about that a few weeks ago. He is saying that these good gifts of God are about the grown-up stuff of God, the grown-up stuff that God gives us, not the QAnon conspiracy theory kind of stuff, but noble stuff, Christ-like stuff, other-centeredness stuff, like Christ stuff. The Father of lights gives good gifts that bring light to a dark world and gifts that bring sacrifice and potentially even overcommitment because they're so worth doing. It's laying your life down kind of stuff. Are you with me? Works for justice and works for peace and works against racism and works against pernicious Christian nationalism and white supremacy. These are the kinds of gifts God gives us to grow up in him. The good and perfect gifts of God reflect God who is light, the father of lights. All of this kind of stuff comes to us reliably. God's not into giving good things today and, and bad things tomorrow. He is consistent. He's not reluctant to give us what we need to grow up to be like his son, Jesus Christ. He gives freely and generously of those gifts. But listen to me, all, all too often we as believers are reluctant. We're reluctant to receive and use or even acknowledge God's good gifts, his Jesus-like gifts for his kingdom purpose. For instance, we, we love the forgiveness gift, don't we? But we resist the gift of forgiving others. We, we love the sacrificial gift of Jesus on the cross. It's all that we stand for. But we resist sacrificing ourselves for kingdom purpose. We like to wear crosses, but we resist picking up our cross and denying ourselves to follow him into places we wouldn't go without him. Unsafe places, we resist that part of it. But church, he has designed us for such things, to be bearers of such gifts designed us to be bearers of his divine light. So let's look at, at the last verse where the father of lights wants to make us the children of lights, the bearer of his light. Look at verse 18. And here I want to use the title, re-gifting, re-gifting 
God's good gifts. Stay with me on this. Regifting, we, we do that and we always are a little embarrassed. This is when you actually should be a regifter. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, church, do you remember about reading about harvest time in Israel and how the Hebrew people would bring the first fruits of all their crops and livestock and take them to God's house, the temple, and, and give them back to God through the priests? It was a powerful statement of, of their belief that everything they had came from God originally. The land and herds and harvest, everything was a gift from God. Their offerings were a national testimony to the unbelieving world around them that, to, to this fact that their God kept his promises. And of course, when people refused to bring first fruits to him, they were testifying to the opposite. This is our land. This is about me. I own it. It's all about me. This is all about me, me, me. So the giving of first fruits, Corey, was, was a barometer of the spiritual health of God's people. They were to take God's good and perfect gifts from every realm and re-gift them back to God. It's like we do with our offering in just a few minutes. And I will say words like this, that we give back what belongs to God in the first place. We give a portion back because we do it to honor him and to, and to give testimony to the fact that every good gift we have first came from him. Regift. Let me, let me try to help us see this. A little girl told a close older friend that she was going to give her papa a pair of slippers for his birthday. And the older girl said, well, where will you get your money? And the little girl opened her eyes wide and said, well, well, father will give me the money. And for a minute, the friend was silent as she thought about the fact that her father then would be, in fact, buying his own present. But then she remembered and thought about this family that she was close friends with. And she remembered that how, his, how the father loved his little girl so much and would, without a doubt, treasure that gift, even though he paid for it himself. Church, we have nothing of ourselves to offer God, to give God. We re-gift gifts, his gifts back. We re-gift the sacrifice of Christ for us back to a world for kingdom purpose, to a world that is sorely in need of that kind of sacrifice. We are the first fruits, the best fruits of what he's given us, of what he's made of us. So what are the first fruits of, of God's people in January 2021, this last day of January? James says, it's you and me. James says, it's Christ followers here today, throughout history. These are God's first fruits. So we present ourselves to the Lord and we say, here we are, send us to be your light, children of the lights, to be Jesus with skin on. Paul says it this way, many of you know it, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, listen to this. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. This is true and proper worship. Grace City, we, you and me, are the, are the living sacrifices. We are the first fruits, re-gifting God's good and perfect gifts everywhere we purpose to go. Leaving them behind us, taking them with us, 
coming alongside people. We represent God's pledge to our neighbors that don't know Christ. We represent God's pledge to marginalized people who are barely acknowledged by the world. We represent God's pledge to desolate streets that only know violence. We represent God's pledge to the unemployed, the unloved, the unhappy, the undone, that the Father of lights has not given up on this terrified world, and we will re-gift his light and lay our lives down for it because he did for us. As the worship team comes up, I want to say this last word. It is not unusual, Grace City, to look at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and ask this question. What could we possibly give in return for our rescue? James brings the answer to us today in this text. It's the re-gifting that matters. So replace your trouble and your temptation by bringing to him your first fruits of his gifts in your life. Go and mature into his likeness and be the testimony of the Father of lights that the world needs to see, that when they look at you, they see a glimpse of what our God in heaven has promised our world. The good news, Grace City, is that he's already given us everything we need, right, Corey? Christ's sacrifice is the solution to our sin. His resurrection is the declaration that because sin has been fully dealt with, everything can and will be made New. Paul says it this way. Don't, I'm not putting it on the screen, but he says it this way. If anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. That's 2 Corinthians 5. Grace City, never take this newness for granted. It's not new once and done. It's new every day. Somebody say every day. You may have heard the colloquialism that always be yourself unless you can be Batman or Wonder Woman then be Batman or Wonder Woman. And Grace City, I agree with that notion biblically. Don't stop with being yourself. The Father of Lights gives you every good and perfect gift you need to grow up to be like his son, Jesus. So I would say this, go be like him. Amen? We're going to sing this song, Abide With Me. You want to know a first step? Take the lyrics of this song. And, and as we abide with Jesus, uh, he takes us and grows us into the first fruits of the blessings he gives. Let's sing together.